Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Right to Read initiative. My name is Dr. Katherine Garforth. And today I have the pleasure of Dr. Nathaniel Swain joining me for a second time so we can look at some of his favorite tools and resources and strategies in the classroom. Last month we spoke to him about his teaching journey and realized it wasn't that direct path to being a classroom teacher. He kind of took a circuitous route to get there. So Dr. Swain, do you want to give us just a quick recap of where you started to where you are now before we go into your class? Sure. So I started my journey um, in linguistics and, and did a Bachelor of um, Arts in linguistics and was very fascinated by language and everything that makes it up. And uh, literacy wasn't a big part of that study because linguistics and linguists tend to study oral language much more closely. Um, but after that, I then trained as a speech pathologist and worked um, in that space, helping young people with language and literacy difficulties, especially um, those adolescents I was really interested in. My PhD work was then um, in youth justice, uh, working with young people struggling with their reading and writing and oral language. And as there, my eyes were opened up to just how wrong um, the journeys of young people in school can be and, and how effective teaching could be the answer to preventing these problems from becoming really big and um, getting on top of these issues and, and challenges very early. So young people do feel like they are succeeding at school and, and school is a place for them rather than a place for them to avoid. Uh, so after that, after working back in schools, after my PhD, I, um, you know, really was drawn to my original um my original sort of a recommendation from my mum that I should become a teacher and that I should try and um, work from within the classroom and from within schools as well as um, on the outside as I had been working and supporting teachers. So that's where I went back and got my teaching degree and have now been enjoying um, working in the classroom and, and helping uh, young students in their first year of school learn how to read and write. And there's nothing more satisfying than seeing that um, happening in, in real time. It's amazing. I, I love that. The, that little light bulb that goes off when they figure they can do it. I've got a, a five-year-old right now and just seeing all the, the lights go off in our head is just amazing uh, and really, really joyful. So as a classroom teacher, you started out with a lot more background <laughs> knowledge <laughs> in terms of the English language, the speech sounds, and how those come together on mm. the uh listening side of things mm, and then I, I remember i took a couple linguistic courses in university and having the background that i did with you know orton gillingham tutoring uh and just realizing oh yeah well that makes it that makes it easy mm. um so how do you feel that that makes your teaching strategies and the resources you use different from say a teacher that doesn't have that linguistic background in the beginning. I think um, the, the way that I think about it is I've always, you know, I've, I've built up my knowledge of the what and the why of um, mm -hmm. um, early reading and writing instruction. And I'm really passionate about just what those fundamental components are and the, like, why they're just so important. I also have in the back of my mind you know, all of the explanations, if a child wants to know why a word is spelt a particular way or how to break a word down or, you know, the, at my fingertips, I've got a lot more of a grasp of sentence structure and, and why students might make certain errors or what things they might struggle with and the kinds of um, difficulties that, that kids encounter that I've supported with them in a one-on-one -on -one context. What I've really been honing is my um, understanding of the how. So how do I bring all of that knowledge and all of that understanding of um, just what good instruction should include. How do I make that come to life on a daily basis and how do I build those routines so that it's something that continually grows? And um, as a teacher, you're not always thinking, okay, what am I going to do today or how am I going to do it? Like trying to make some of those things routinized so you can then focus on the learners and focus on what they're giving back. So certainly, um, a lot of the background knowledge that teachers need to learn when they realize that there is this science of reading and they've missed out at university. I haven't had to do that, um, that huge sort of undertaking of professional learning, but what I've been learning so much is all about how to best make that come alive in the classroom. Um, and some of the ways that we do that is at, at our school, we, 
um, think about our literacy instruction into three main components and three main um, parts of the block. So mm-hmm. we've got a 50 minute session that's all about literacy skills. And we focus on obviously phonemic awareness, um, the building of word reading, um, decoding and encoding. So mm-hmm. reading and, and spelling um, increasingly challenging words. But at the beginning of the year, we just started with simple CVC words or VC words. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and now we're up to um, words that have three consonants before the vowel or um, three consonants after the vowel. And um, in the next few weeks, we'll be looking at long vowels for the first time. So it, it, it starts very slowly and builds up over time. The other parts of the skills session are things um, including the handwriting instruction, which goes for about 10 minutes. There's a paired fluency session, which goes for 10 minutes as well, where they read in pairs um, decodable readers and the, the teacher can float around and, and hear how they're reading and, and, and provide support or um, extra instruction in that time. But the, the best thing about the paired fluency is that there are they're sort of um, working together in a, with a like sort of peer, sort of slightly higher or slightly lower than themselves. And then the last part is vocabulary instruction where we teach new vocabulary and also new morphemes. So with preps, we're just starting. So that's the first year of school. We're just starting to introduce some um, prefixes this uh, term, which is really exciting. So they'll get their first prefix on Monday, which is um, very cool. So they, a lot of them are very interested in how words are put together and they got really excited looking at plurals when we looked at, um, you know, uh, CVCC words and just started putting S's on the ends of words like cat and bit and tap and things like that. And they're like, oh, the, you know, we know what a plural S is and they got really excited. So I think they'll get really excited again about the, um, the morphology of prefixes as well. Um, so that's the skills block, um, which we call forms, which is the name of our um, sort of uh, curriculum that we've put together to sort of bring this to life. Um, and Shane Pearson's the author of that. And it's an incredible resource that's actually going to be available to any school to use. Um, and it's got daily sort of slides and resources ready to go that um, our school has been sort of pull- pulling together and that Shane has been um, sort of honing and, and crafting, which is amazing. Um, they're built for Australian vowels, so there's going to be some things with international audiences. It's not always going to look the same, but in the early stages, it's certainly very applicable. And also the morphology slides, which happen from... Um, you know, the spelling session turns into basically a morphology vocabulary session from year three onwards because mm-hmm. the basic decoding and spelling is under under sort of control by that point or by that point in the program. Um, so the morphology is definitely applicable for an international audience as well. Um, the other two, just to give you the, the overview before we go deeper, um, the other two parts of our literacy block are a session on um, writing instruction. So we, we call it right to learn. And that, that's where we learn the building blocks of sentences and um, paragraphs and um, compositions in upper year levels. So with our um, first year students this year, we've been looking at um, the components of a sentence and, and building little sentences. So whether it's um, doing a lot of things in an oral sort of format before we've been able to transcribe our work. So the, the students might provide ideas and fill in, fill in blanks in sentences and um, I can talk to you more about that as well. Um, but basically, they're, they're getting a sense of how to be a writer and make to make choices as a writer in a very sort of discreet way to begin with, um, which is exciting. And then the last part is what we call read to learn, which is our opportunity to use our reading skills. In this case, it's mainly teacher facilitated reading. So reading to the students in order to learn things. So whether it's learning from literature, learning from um, book uh, texts about uh uh, the world, so science and the humanities, uh, history, geography, that sort of thing. And we've done a range of different units and that's sort of how we embed our um, humanities and um, social sciences sort of within our reading block, which is a really, I think a really clever thing because you're building background knowledge in order to help them to comprehend texts, um, which they can then continue building in their upper years as well. And it just sort of builds, builds, builds. Um, but that's that's basically how we make it come to life in our school. And in my classroom, we, we follow a similar structure to across the whole school. It just looks a bit different with the first year of school. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, um, it's amazing how much all of those components sort of interrelate together and how they come together in a really beautiful way and obviously it's, it's only one way of doing it so you can carve up that time and carve up that work with students in many different ways but we're finding this sort of mix is is nice because it helps keep certain things discreet that allows the teacher to focus on certain elements so not getting them to think about their handwriting and spelling so much when they are focusing on crafting and composition because it's very hard to do two of those things at once um you know helping them to focus on the knowledge of what they're doing 
um, and the, what they're learning from reading when they're looking at the read to learn sort of session rather than not just focusing on the basics of decoding in that point. So having, having those things separately um, worked upon, I think is working well so far. That's great. Well, one thing that I want to jump in before we go on to whatever brilliant thing you're going to talk about next is <laughs> talking about that introduction of the plural S very quickly mm. uh, when mm. you're doing that phonics instruction, when you're working for the CVCC words. So you're not just assuming that the students can figure it out on their own mm. when by just adding an S and you're not saying it's, well, it's just a word. You're actually going in and explicitly teaching that plural S. What does that mm. look like? So it's it's quite an, um, it's a brief sort of explicit teaching moment because the focus is on the decoding and encoding, but mm. it's that little nugget of information that helps them realize that, um, you know, as students discover with their, their language that it's not just encoding sounds, like the our code also encodes meaning. And so, mm if you get that first morpheme such as a plural s um, you then realize that certain letters do other things than just um, differentiate between different words they actually um, change words and and do things that are functional and meaningful so um, we would just sort of for instance we'd have a, a range of cvc words on the slide and i think this session might be um, one of the ones that are available on the forms website that you, you know people could have a look at and see how we do it it's sort of we'll have things like cat and tap and um, it's hard to think of words on the spot, um, other CVC words on the slide. And sort of we know how to read CVC words at this point. It's like week um, 12 or week 13 in the program. Um, and then on the other side of the slide, we then have those same words with an extra S added to them. Um, and then there's a picture that shows this is one cat and this is two cats. This is one tap and these are three taps. So we say plural means more than one and plural is um, showed with the plural S and that's why we read it as cats and taps and so on. And so you're getting them to hear it, but also to understand what that is doing. And a lot of them have, an if they're oral language, like English language um, users, then they have an intuitive sense of what plural is. They know that there's one cat and two cats. You can't say three cat, you have to say three cats. And so they know that there's a rule there, but now you've just drawn their awareness to it in a way that's really developmentally sort of accessible for them. Um, and also gets them to think about um, when they're starting to transcribe some of their ideas and, and starting to experiment with writing, they can remember, oh yeah, there's that plural, plural sort of s on the end that can help me with um, writing more than one thing. So it, it's very subtle and it doesn't, doesn't take a huge amount of time with the lesson because the, the focus is on that decoding and encoding and making sure they can hear that sound and, and transcribe that sound um, and then blend it back together. But it's, it's a really nice introduction and a really gentle introduction to you know, morphology, which is to come and which becomes the bread and butter of the work in the upper years um, because the, the general spelling is, is under control um, and to really unlock the, the powers of the English language at, you know, in the upper years, you have to go into morphology and etymology. Of course. Now, when you're doing those initial GPCs or grapheme phoneme correspondence instructions, how many new graphemes are you introducing in a week? Mm. So I think it works out to be about three or four in the initial few weeks. And then that reduces down to two as we've built up a lot. So I think in the first five weeks we do um, say SATP is like the first four and some people will choose different ones, but you know, those are pretty useful to make some CVC words. So it's a pretty good set to choose. The next ones will be another four. And now you're testing me, I can't exactly remember which four it is, but it's the other ones that I haven't thought of. So maybe I am is one of them. The, the sat pin words, right? Sat pin, yeah. So it's either sat pin or sat pim. I think it might be M first because it's an easier one to visualize yeah. and then n comes later but anyway it's it's much for muchness we don't we know that the research doesn't say that one set should be introduced before the other it's just that have a sequence and have an idea that the sequence is well thought out and stick to the sequences is really what's most important so in the first four weeks i think it's about four um sound letter patterns that are introduced at once so mm -hmm. there'll be four so then by the end of the fourth week they've got about um 16 that they can use and um there's then 
what we start doing is introducing new codes. We call them codes, but GPC, same thing. We introduce new codes um, every week then, and it's usually about two extra ones every week because we start introducing two letter codes before we ever expecting them to start using them in their reading or their spelling. So they'll get exposed to you know, like the Autumn Gillingham, they'll have like the uh, phonogram. So we'll show a code like, um, they learned TH, for instance, many weeks before they needed to use that in their reading because it's quite a, a difficult diagraph. But mm. they learned it was, um, and we always do it, that it's, they learn the, the two or three sounds that the, the code makes, even though we're really focusing on getting them to say the first or um, spell with the first sound initially. So, and that is really handy later on when you start explaining why some words like the S um, code is, you know, it actually says two sounds, so s and it's really handy later on when you start getting words like um, uh, is and was, that there's a really easy way to be like, oh, sometimes the S makes it second sound. So is and was, so it's still fine. We spell it with an S, it's not spelt with a Z. So that introduction, even in a subtle way of saying, this is the s code holding up the S, then that just gets them to know that, you know, different um, GPCs will say different um sounds and it's okay to have more than one sound in fact it, it becomes the norm later on so they'll get introduced to the th though they learn it as th, th, and we have this big focus on the phonemic awareness of it and the, the making it with with the the teeth and the uh, the tongue going through the teeth interdentally and the kids really you know that's really hard for some of them because at five-year-olds um as a speech pathologist i know that they're not expected to have that mastered until around the age of seven or eight, but they can start being aware of it and start even using it in their spelling, even if they're not able to produce it, which is what I've seen in my classroom. I've still got, you know, seven or eight kids out of the 20 that can't say that sound, but they can hear that sound and they can hear when it's meant to be used. So um, it's really it's really interesting how that if you start honing that phonemic awareness early um, and really having that daily practice of phonemic awareness, which we do for about three or four minutes without letters, and then we the rest of it's phonemic awareness in the context of letters, um, so we have a, that mix, um, then the kids really have that awareness um, really early of those sounds and, and mapping those to the codes that we're showing them as well. Um, so I've forgotten what your original question was, but yeah, they, they get they get those original code, they get those codes sort of, um, eventually it becomes about two a week and now they're starting to get long vowels. So they've had a week where it's E, so double E, and they'll have E as in like each, um, which they learn as E, A, A for example. And some of those vowels will be different <laughs> depending on your accent as well. So they'll have different, um, different combinations of, of vowels, especially the long vowels just sound very different. Of course. Well, that's great. Now, one thing that we didn't discuss is when, when you first got those students at the beginning of the year, which is February mm. for you guys? Yeah, at the end of January. Yep. Yeah, that's confusing. <laughs> <laughs> um, is there anything that you do when you first get them to kind of see where their skills at? Do you have any screening? Yeah, we exactly. Yeah, we, we actually bring them in the, the year before. So we bring them in. So in, um, Northern Hemisphere, it would be a few months before, so before the end of this, the previous school year. Mm -hmm. um, we we bring them in and we we do some phonemic awareness screening and some letter sound awareness screening. So it's not a measure of their reading ability, but it's those pre-literacy skills which are so important, which we talked about last time. Um, and we also get a brief measure of their oral language as well. Um, so we do like a narrative language measure where we read a story and get them to tell it back. Um, and that was really useful because it meant that we had an idea of who our learners were at day one and we actually allocated some of them to additional support from day one which i know sounds a little bit intense but it actually meant that we knew who those kids who who are likely to have difficulty with the first few weeks of um, school and, and to make the the connection between letters and sounds in the initial stages or to hear the differences between sounds because of that, that phonemic awareness difficulty. Um, and it means that a lot of those kids that we early identified have now actually caught up and are not no longer needing extra support because they were able to keep pace with their peers. So um, those screeners are really great. And we use things from EasyCBM, which I'm not sure if that's a measure that's used in Canada as well, but you know, any of those um, curriculum-based measures are, are, are good enough for that sort of level, but there's also um, more, if you have a speech pathologist available, they can do more in-depth things with those students that um, you know are struggling particularly with aspects of phonemic awareness, or you might use, say, some David Kilpatrick resources like the, um, the past assessment or something like that to, to help um, hone in a little bit deeper with some of those students. And the other thing we do is we let 
you know, we then see how they progress in the first four weeks of school. And after the first, I think, week five, we then do a, a CVC test where we see if they can read some VC and CVC words. And the students that have a lot of difficulty with that, because after five weeks, they've done a lot of CVC and, and VC practice, then we then um, give them that additional support as well. And some of those who like sort of were, were flagged at, um, you know, week five have now received that support and now, you know, um, some of them were different to the ones we identified early because maybe their challenge was more about the integration between sounds and letters. Um, now they've received that support and you know most of them are back in, into the general as well and, and not having to be pulled out anymore. They're just staying with the group the entire time. So um, I'd say in my class, there's about one or two students that I'm still um, you know much more vigilant about and wanting to make sure. Um, and, and some of them have issues with fine motor and things like that as well. So so they've got some other challenges as well, which we're trying to get on top of. Um, so yeah, early screening is really useful and it really just makes the job of the classroom teacher easier because you're helping keep that group together as a whole. And, you know, you're not holding anyone back, but you're also not, you're ensuring that no one gets left behind. That's the important thing. Well, I, I love how you guys do that, especially because when you think about it logistically, those mm. that first month or two in school, Typically, the support teachers have a lot more flexibility in their schedule as the other teachers mm, yeah. in their grades are sorting things out. So you might be exactly. able to throw them away for, you know, a block here, block there and just say, look, you know what? We just want to focus on these skills with these students. They get that intensive intervention. And when other teachers like, ah, I really need the support time. You know yeah. yeah. I borrowed an hour from you here. Take an hour there. Like, Treating yeah, things off. It's really, it's really useful. Yeah, exactly. And uh, you're able to get things, you know, hit the ground running, which is, which is great. And especially when at this point, their brain is so plastic. Mm. And, and like, there's, I think there's arguments because obviously they're ready to learn, but they're also, some people would say, oh, you know, you know, first term, everyone should just settle in and um, give them, you know, make it really easy and everything. And, and obviously we don't have a full schedule going from week one, but we do have that focus on um, the forms approach, which is the literacy skills block. So if nothing else, that forms lesson is happening every day. Um, and I think other things then get added in. So we start with maybe one or two writing sessions a week and then we build it up to three or four and now it's up to five in week in halfway through the year. Um, and the same for reading. We start with one or two sessions then it builds up to three or four. Now it's going to be five as well. So the whole literacy block has still now finally come together that it's five days a week, three sessions a day, which mm -hmm. ends up being about 150 minutes a day, um, which is, is a lot of, of time, but it's we feel like it's really useful for, um, especially in the early years. Um, but you know, I think, I think you're right. It's, you've got to use that time when they're ready to go and you also want to set them up so that they don't, cause they're potentially doing a lot of reading at home and it depends on what kinds of readers they're reading at home as well, whether they might be in, you know, our government gives them, gives the parents guides, which might be doing the opposite of, um, of what we're wanting them to do, which is to really look at the words and really understand the, the connection between sounds and letters and start to decode in a, you know, and using decodable text make that makes that so much easier. But if they've got other information that parents have had access to, and they might be, you know, using other multi-queuing strategies, for instance, such as looking at the picture or guessing from the sentence or looking at predictable books or memorizing lists of sight words and things, then that can start to interfere, I think, with um, what we're trying to do. So if we go, if we go sort of really clear and really um, uh, sort of vigilant early, then we start to set them up on the right track. And we didn't send, you know, readers home until, you know, right towards the end of the first term. So it's week 10 or 11. And for some students who didn't get that basic decoding or blending, not until halfway through the second term. So it was week 15 of, of the whole year. So so, um, and the reason is we don't want them to send, be sent home books that they're not going to um, be able to decode um, and that parents think that it's their job to get them to guess or that the parent's job is to read it um, for them and just make them copy, which is not, we want them to really get in there and decode. They were reading obviously other books and rich literature and parents reading to the children. And that's for the purpose of developing oral language and appreciation of literature. And we're not never um, preventing that. But when you're trying to get that independent reading happening, as you've been saying, um, 
you really want to set up those really good habits from the beginning and teach them that reading is a process of, of um, really un- looking at the, each individual word and mapping those words. Um, and eventually they become automatically recognized and the children don't even know how they've done it, that they've just read it. But you want them getting to there not by memorization of whole words, but by really analyzing the sound letter patterns and, and blending them together. So getting that phonemic awareness to, to link with that orthographic knowledge and um, eventually the morphological knowledge as well. And that's when all the sweet stuff happens because you've got independent readers who can read any word. Of course. Well, and, you know, I'd argue, you know, you said the caution about starting the, hitting the ground running and everything, but when you're <laughs> looking at phonological awareness and, you know, basic alphabetic letters, that's not really heavy intensive. No, it's fun. Exactly. Right. Those are fun word games that kids get excited about. And you can really work on that rapport building while you're doing it. Mm. Exactly. And the other things we do in the early stages are a really fun, you know, read to learn unit from the core knowledge sequence, which looks at nursery rhymes and the kids, you know, it's a beautiful introduction because it's like a bridge between preschool and formal school, because a lot of them know these nursery rhymes and rather than just singing them, we're also analyzing them and trying to understand the meaning, like what, you know, roses are red, violets are blue. What is a rose? How is it different to a violet? Um, you know, and they, they get that opportunity to really enjoy language and think about it. So that mixed with the phonic skills and um, the, the phonemic awareness that we're building from the early early sort of few weeks, it is a beautiful introduction to schooling. And I just remember so much, um, you know, little faces lighting up of how fun um, that introduction was, even though we're also making really good use of that time um, and ensuring that we don't get to halfway through the year and we realize, oh, there's half of our class can't blend or can't decode basic VC words. Like that would be then a big challenge. And I feel like you're constantly battling to, to catch up, which is not what you want. Yeah, it, it's putting that um, the fence around the river at the top instead of catching them at the mm. bottom, falling down the waterfall, right? That's right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so that prevention or that um, vigilance early can just save you so much time and, and so much, uh, you know, as I said about the bad habits, you don't want students thinking that reading is a guessing game and that you just have to guess at the words and it'll suddenly work. Um, you want them to know that there's, there's a key to unlock with literacy and that you can, you can, if you learn those building blocks that you can then attack any word. And when you, like some of my students this year, when they've finally realized that, oh, this is what you do when you want to read a new word, they'll come to school so proud and they say, I can read now. And they, they have this, they have this pride in, I figured it out. I know what to do. You say the sounds and then you blend them together. And then you, you can read the word. And then they show their friends, like I can read this word. And they go, D- dog dog and they're just so excited that they can do it and you know that's the beauty of the decodable text as well is that you are giving them words that are um, readable and that they can actually access it at their level of orthographic knowledge i think you're setting them up for feeling successful rather than oh you know reading so hard it must be just a guessing game um well you know why do some kids get it and so other kids don't it's it, everyone can get it and everyone has the opportunity to learn it even those students who are at risk for dyslexia um you know have that opportunity to to get those um correct um ways of attacking words from the beginning not giving them things that are going to get them off the wrong on the wrong start to to reading and thinking it is a memorization sort of approach and so many of those students i've worked with before being in the classroom as a, as a speech pathologist you just see that if they had that initial instruction in, you know, really attacking words and looking at the words and, and looking at letter by letter, so much time would have would have been um, saved and so much frustration would have been avoided because you're now having to undo all of those strategies where, you know, this child has got a dyslexic brain, which means that learning those GPCs is going to be harder. It's going to be, you need more instruction, more time, more focus, more intensive, um, more exposures. And, you know, the blending is difficult as well because they've got a phonological deficit. And so if you've then the first year of schooling, you've taught them that just look at these predictable books and memorize them. They, a lot, a lot of the time they might have a good memory. So they look like they're reading the whole year and they, they look like they're spelling the whole year because they've memorized particular words and they keep using them over and over. Um, so it's only later that they, then they have to unlearn a whole lot of stuff. And that's really soul destroying. I think when you think you're a good reader and then suddenly you realize you're not like that's, 
um, that would be like your world sort of crashing down when you're thinking about how important reading is for the children's sense of I'm going to school, I'm going to learn to read just like my older brother or like my cousin or whatever it might be. Of course. And I do want to highlight that when you're doing the screening stuff, you're not diagnosing any of these students with anything. You're no. just, and I, you know, as a speechy, I could have, you know, I could have gone yeah. in and been like, oh, you know, I think it's, I think it's this, or I think it's that it's, it's literally like a, a set of indicators that tells us that this child might have more difficulty and it's a, it's a way to prevent instructional casualties. So if we can get on top of this and to um, provide additional instruction, there's no need for any formal diagnosis. If these kids eventually catch up with their peers, it's you, they may have been at risk for something but it's, it hasn't actually eventuated or it, it's been literally prevented just by good classroom instruction plus a little bit of tier two intervention. And that saves everybody time, frustration and money. <laughs> exactly. Um, and just makes school so much more fun. And in the early stages, I can't stress this enough, like you know, in the later years in secondary schools where I've worked as well, the idea of doing something different and doing something special is so socially isolating. Like kids can feel really off put by the idea of not going into the main- mainstream and having to do something different or something on the side. But in the early years of school, it's like, hey, I get to go and do this special thing. And all of the, <laughs> the other kids go, when do I get to go and work with Mrs. X? Like, you know, I want to go, and, go and, and do some extra reading with her. So it's when you do it this early and you do it in a way that's really um, gentle and, and really supportive, it, it doesn't even feel like you're providing intervention. It, it's just um, extra time with a teacher who doesn't love doing that. Exactly. So let's take a look at those blocks section by section. Mm. So the first three minutes are the the phonological awareness. What are you doing? So we've got um, basically a sequence of um, exercises that um, sort of have a range of CVC, eventually, sorry, VC words and then CVC words and um, that that build up over time. And we're basically blending those. So I'll give the... um, the, the sounds and we're blending them together using like a visual of some dots or using our fingers um, mm. and then also um, segmenting. So I'll um, say a word and we segment the word together. So it starts off really, really simple. Like um, everyone say at, at, let's see, hear the sounds in at. Who can hear the first sound? Uh, and then what's the second sound? T. So I've got two sounds. So I have a representation like two magnets on the board with at, and there'll be a list of 10 words that we go through and do that with and it'll you know kids will pick up the patterns and they'll, they'll talk about what they could hear the difference of and if we need to we'll do some cute articulation to hearing the difference between some of those vowels um and we'll, we'll show the, the the shape that the mouth is in to make those sounds and those patterns um and it's literally just three minutes and over time that just gets a little bit more sort of advanced and our phonemic awareness tends to be about three or four weeks ahead of what we then do in decoding so we we do VC and and then eventually CVC and then a few weeks later we're doing CBC with the kids um, with reading and then you will move on to CCV sorry CVCC first so um, final consonant added and then we'll do a second consonant at the start and then we'll do three consonants at the end I think at the moment we're up to two consonants at the start and two at the end so CCVCC or the other way around for your viewing um, and you know, kids aren't reading those words just yet, not in the general sort of, and reading and spelling those just yet in the phonics component, but they are learning to hear those sounds. And for some of them, it's a really great opportunity to then hear which students are having trouble with those internal consonants, which ones are just, you know, when you're hearing the word like stop, they're just saying stop. They can't hear the t in there. Or if you're giving them, um, you're giving them the sounds like stop, they can't hear the t, so they're just right, they're just saying stop. So um, it's really useful because it's you can then um, address and, and really hone that instruction with those particular students who are having trouble hearing those internal consonants or hearing the differences between different vowels. So getting, um, it's going to sound different in an Australian accent, but like the et, like in egg, or the it, like in, which sounds probably very similar to you, like the it, like in igloo. Um, hearing the difference between et and it can be really difficult. Um, the difference between um, at and et can be hard for some kids. Um, so getting those getting those um, down pat and letting them hear the differences between those vowels is also the focus of that first three minutes. And as I said, that builds over time and, and um, it stays a little bit ahead of what we're doing in the next component, which is the reading and spelling part. Okay, well, in the, the reading and spelling part, 
I guess, more like the spelling part, when you're first doing that, are you helping them segment the word into the number of phonemes before you're not Definitely. just, okay, it's, well, we did that in the last three minutes. Now your turn, you're on your own. Definitely. It's, it's for the first four or five weeks, it's just, it's mainly teacher modeled. So we're doing it together and we're modeling it and, and doing, so it's the, I do and the, we do, it's very little you do. So, um, they, they don't really independently spell many words for the first few weeks. They basically just transcribing what they're hearing and, and um, writing or using magnetic letters to represent the sounds that they're hearing in those words. So we'll, you know, in the first week, they've got four sounds to work with. So we'll do words like um, sat and um, tap and things like that. Um, only one vowel, I think, and... Yeah, S-A-T-P. So only one vowel and, and three consonants. So they're just doing some combinations of those words and it's really just teacher modeling. So I hear, let's um, read these words on the screen. So we'll have um, maybe five or six words for them to read and we'll uh, read each individual one together. It'll be V-C, 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 and then maybe one C-V-C at the end. Um, and then we'll go and we'll on our on our little whiteboards or um, using magnetic letters or some of them, if they're ready to write, they'll start writing in the first few weeks. Um, they'll then represent those sounds. So they'll go, um, you know, I can hear at has got two sounds at, so let's write the sound for at. And then I've written it on the board already so they can copy a, cause they might not know that yet. And then they're still learning how to form letters obviously. Um, or they will use the a from the magnetic letters as well to go ah, and then I can hear a second sound t, t, um, and they write the T. And, you know, as the things go on, it's obviously sounds very simple to begin with, but now they're at the point where I'll give them a word like, um, I'll be able to get to the point where I give them a word like, uh, I think we've done like the word left. So I'll say left and I'll model the sounds and we'll use, like we call it finger spelling. So we'll go, l, e, f, t. So I see four sounds. I'll do four dots on the board. They're already back at their tables at this point because they've read that word already. And then they'll spell the, that word. And that, a lot of them will just launch straight into it and they'll go, they'll write down the sound they can hear for ul, and then they'll write the sound they can hear for e, and then f, t. And um, some of them will leave out a sound or will wait and sort of suss it out until I start modeling. And usually I'll just start putting sound by sound every 10 or 30 seconds. And so if they're really struggling, they'll then copy and I'll model, I'll go to them, I'll say ul, and we'll write down the air and then fft. But you know, um, 19 out of 20 are now starting to write those words independently and might only miss one or two sounds or hear, you know, muck, muck up the difference between the E and the I, for instance. Um, so we're now at that CVCC level and also starting to do CCVC as well. So those are two consonants at the start, which is amazing because we're only halfway through the year um, and they're already starting to represent more than just a CVC word in their spelling, um, which, you know, just opens up so many different kinds of words that they can then start reading and start um, writing as well. So any word that we get them to spell, they've already had a chance to blend and uh, so read it and blend it um, and decode it together. And we'll do that together on the mat. Um, and we do that through lots of teacher modeling. And um, we'll also, um, you know, at the start before that, we'll also have a review of all the previous sort of weeks. So we'll have a, a selection from previous weeks of different words that we've read and spelt. And we'll write some of those on the whiteboards as well. Then we'll go back to our tables and write the, the focus words for that day. Um, so that's where it really gets really exciting because they get that opportunity to show what they've then read and then practice spelling it. And there's that great, um, there's that great knowledge I think that comes from actually getting good at spelling makes you a much better reader. So if you're able to represent the sounds and know how to map them, then it helps you be much more reflexive when you then are reading. You can look at what you're reading and really analyze it because you know how to spell that word already. So rather than just reading it and memorizing, you know, patterns and things like that, you're actually analyzing every single word that you're reading. Um, and it, it does that, that having that reading and spelling so close to each other really does allow for that generalization of those GPCs and that the, the skills that you're building over time, um, to be much more close rather than just read, 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 read. And then in the next lesson, we'll do some spelling. I think that link between reading and spelling back and forth is just so key. Well, and I think that's what a lot of schools are missing. Their, their reading program and their spelling program are separate. Are different, yeah. And yeah. not related. And especially in those older grades, you're not seeing the connection between you know, the, the letter sounds that they're working on or the, the code knowledge that they're working yeah. on. And then when they're reading, they're work, reading on something that has nothing to do with it. So it, it's not using that 
ability to optimize what you're doing mm. at the same time to help them be familiar with that code. Mm. And in the forms curriculum, that that process of reading and then spelling just stays the same, even if they're working on spelling rules in like the, the, the later years, they're learning, you know, the silent final E rule and they're learning about adding suffixes and things like that. And what happening happens with doubling or dropping the E or um, changing Y to I, all of those sort of spelling rules. Um, but, and then it also when they change to morph, morphemes and morphological knowledge, we're still reading those words and spelling those words, just constantly reading and spelling, reading and spelling um, so that you know, there is that intimate connection. And this is where I, I'm not sure if I mentioned this last time is I'll, I'll on yard duty, I'll come up and I'll hear students debating about how you spell a particular word or which morpheme should go where or, or how to analyze it and what the, the word history might be, because they're just so in, engrossed in words and, and learning how they fit together. And because they've just done so much reading and spelling um, in that, you know, 20 minutes every single day, all the way through their primary schooling, um, they can, they just see it in their minds. Like they, they're really good at oral spelling. They don't even need to have paper in front of them to have a debate about how to spell a word, which is so, so good. I think it just shows that they're invested in words and they care about whether they're right or not about, you know, how, where that word comes from or, or how that word's put together. And um, it's just lovely to know that um, there is so much joy in, feeling success as well. You're not just teaching this stuff for the sake of it. You're teaching it because it helps them to become lovers of language and, and lovers of what they're trying to do with their with their words and how eventually spelling becomes something that's much more background and that's sort of, in, in you know, you're only really thinking about it when you're spelling really difficult, irregular words. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it frees up all that thinking to then focus on the meaning of what you're reading about or what you're writing about and how to be a craft, um, how to craft a great composition and everything. So um, it, it not only makes them lovers of, of language, but also enables them to free up their working memory to really focus on all the other parts of, of literacy, which is so important. Of course, and I think as we're doing this, we're actually teaching parents some things at the same time as, as they learn along with their, their children. That does happen. I know it like from personal experience as someone that went through the Orton Gillingham program to learn how to read, uh, whereas my husband didn't have any issues and I'll be explaining something to my, my kids. And then he's like, mm. I never knew that. And it's like, yeah. he did. He had, had, it makes sense. He wasn't explicitly aware. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Now, the one thing that I do want to highlight to listeners is you were working with students who, I mean, technically some of them can probably be four years old at the time that you start working with them just because of how the grade works. But speech, you have speech pathologists work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, and I don't know how it works. Oh, are you talking about in the classroom? The oh, yes. Yeah, most of them, most of them have turned five. So the, by February, all of them should have turned five. That's sort of how it sort of works oh, within the first. Yeah. So um, I think the cutoff is like March. Yeah. Yeah. In Canada, you'll still have, and in the States, you'll still have some four-year-olds for the first couple months of school. Yeah. And yeah, then, it's similar. I think similar here, but um, most of them, yeah, by now everyone's five. five. Yeah. It's, in, it's in their yeah. fifth year that they're starting with you. And then by the yeah. end of the school year, some of them are already six. So we're yeah, talking about true. young students and you're having this success and you are an amazing teacher and have a, a wonderful program, but this isn't unique to you and, and where you're- No, no, this is just, this is just our way of, of getting the, the research. Yeah, of course. just getting the research yeah. to come to life in the classroom. Anyone can do this, exactly. Yeah, so listeners don't think, oh, well, you know, I'm not in Australia. I don't have Dr. Swain's background. I can't do this. <laughs> That's not true. You can do it in a remote community in Canada, the United States and England. In New Zealand, it is possible. It is knowledge that is accessible to you. And yes, there may be a little bit of accent difference based on programs, but that's nothing that you can't filter out and adjust. Hmm. Uh, so that's important. And I know I'm plugging. I'm plugging that um, the forms program a little bit, and that's about. Um, P-H-O-R-M-E-S, because it stands for phonology, orthography, morphology, and etymology and semantics, which if you know your linguistics, that's sort of the main components of, of um, figuring out words. Um, so the other benefit is that it is a free open source um, curriculum that we've put together. And um, it's not all complete and, and made available as yet, but the, the author, Shane Pearson, who's at my school, is you know tirelessly working to get that already by the end of um, sort of December this year. Um, so, you know, if, if people wanted to start 
using some of those resources that there's, there's things that are available already. Um, as, as you've mentioned, you might want to adapt certain things to make it work for your accent or to make it work for your um, context. But, um, you know, those resources hopefully help to save a lot of the time and energy that teachers have to put into just getting things sorted and, and organizing all of those materials that they need on hand. Because the beauty of the program, in my view, is that there's no script or anything so I don't have to read from a script. Um, so there is a bit of work to figure out how you want it to come to life in your classroom. But I don't have to think of the words that I want them to focus on. I don't have to think of, you know, what is the, the content of what we're doing. I can just focus completely on what my students are doing and, and how they're doing it and how I can best explain it to them. Because I know it's hard to do both of those things at once. Like, what word should I focus on today? And, and how can I think of these? I've got these GPCs I've come up with, which word should I then build from there? It's really difficult work. So if they, they these words appear before you and that's done in a particular sequence and it's reviews and it's all built in there as well, then like any good curriculum, it, it takes some of that guesswork out of that day-to-day -day practice um, and frees you up as a teacher to focus on what your students are doing and what you're doing to best explain it, um, which is, it's just amazing. I, I can't, I can't, um, uh, advocate more strongly for having a really robust sequence and a, a set of curriculum documents to work from. Of course. And do you feel that in a lot of places, it, people worry about that taking away teacher autonomy, having a program, do you feel that that's doing it? Or is it giving you more because you have that time to focus on how you want to deliver it and the other parts of your instruction? Mm. Uh, I was having a, a, a debate with a few teachers on the um, and other people in the education space uh, about, you know, whether it does impact on teacher autonomy and whether it's right to have a sequence at all. There's some teachers who believe that there should be no sequence um, because they've, they've taught in a way that's much more driven around what students are writing. And then if they're having certain spelling errors in their writing, then you just teach those things. And um, I feel like if I taught in that way, it would be exhausting. <laughs> first of all, and so much more work, um, but it also wouldn't be as systematic and, and um, as carefully um, planned and um, having a much stronger net to catch those students who won't be making those connections if it was a much more sort of um, uh, bespoke on the fly sort of created program. Um, you know, it, the enacted curriculum is always going to come to life in the classroom in some way, but where it's coming from, I think, should be from something that's been put together in a really thought out way, in a really um, clear way. It doesn't have to be, um, doesn't have to be an, a program that you've built or sorry, a program that you've bought. It could be something that you build yourself if you want to put that time in. But there are good things out there to save you that time. In terms of my autonomy, I think it gives me the freedom to really focus on what I'm doing in the classroom. I don't have to think about um, which sound letter patterns am I introducing today. I know that the sequence is solid and that um, it's um, it's uh, introducing it's introducing the right number and the right frequency, and it, it's getting getting me um, through that opportunity to teach students how to read and write in a in a um, clear and a systematic way. Um, so my autonomy is really about how I then enact that in the in the classroom and, and how I've help that come to life for my students. So if anything, it gives me the autonomy then to focus on the other parts of the curriculum, which are more sort of uh, topic driven. So looking at our read to learn units, like thinking about which topics do we want to focus on first? Which units do we want to come make come to life? How do we want those independent activities to look? And what are we asking students to do with that learning? So there's so much more thinking and, and autonomy that's involved in that part of teaching that I don't need to be autonomous in how I teach decoding and <laughs> encoding um, in terms of the what. I think if someone tells me the what and, you know, if, if that's a sequence that's been put together by someone who's experienced and, and knows what they're talking about and, and reflects the research, then I'm going to put my faith in that in that and, and see it come to life. And the other thing is that if, if people use these materials and they've got feedback, like this is a resource and just like other resources that are out there that, that do um, continually get better. And so, you know, there's, there's things that will, that I'm sure the author of forms will, Shane Pearson will also um, take into account and, and make adjustments and things like that. So it's better for our collective brains to come together to improve resources like these, to um, improve these sorts of sequences um, than just individual teachers having to make them from scratch. It breaks my heart the idea of teachers around the world basically doing the same PowerPoint presentation or the same set of worksheets or, you know, highlighting the same things and, and writing the same things on the board um, from scratch every single day when they could be actually investing that time in other things. Like that's time that could be put towards so many 
more important activities as a teacher of getting to know your students of of, of um, understanding what they're doing in the classroom of, of providing that one-on-one support of um, you know getting to know the families that might need that additional guidance or you know giving them strategies for at home like there's a myriad of things that teachers could be doing with their time so anything that helps them to free up that um, that mental space and that time so that they can be a better responsive teacher I think is is definitely something I'm a fan of of course and not to mention lessen the load on you and hopefully help prevent that teacher burnout ah exactly it's like there's enough there's enough coming at you as a teacher that you don't want to have to literally create everything from scratch for every day that you teach um, and you know it's hard it's hard to sustain that so if you if you can't be as prepared as you want to be teachers then have to sort of do some things on the fly and have a very loose plan for what they might do for the week. And whether that produces as good a result as something that's been thought out and something that's been put together systematically and has the resources to go with it, then I, I think you can't argue with how you'd want to be the teacher that has their resources already and, 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 and ready to go and ready to implement rather than like, oh, I don't know exactly which words I'm going to get them to spell today. I'll just think of it on the spot. My ability to think of words on the spot is nowhere near as good as my ability to look at a sequence that's been put together and say, well, that's going to work and that's not going to work. That's that's where the autonomy is, is that I decide, okay, there's six words here for us to spell. I'm going to do three of them because that's all the time that I've got. And I'm going to choose the ones that I think are going to work the best for this particular moment. And I still am in charge of my classroom. There's no one telling me um, what to do on a minute by minute or hour by hour basis. But um it's given me that opportunity to, you know, have the time on the weekend to do something that's good for me and for my well-being, rather than constantly working all the time. That's not that's not what we want, and it's the reason why so many teachers do burn out in the first five years. Of course, of course, and that's too bad because, you know, it takes a lot of heart to be a teacher, and those who even just oh. do their teacher education program, we want to do everything that we can to support them, and have that fresh new enthusiasm for as long as they can mm, exactly you don't want them to feel like it's you know you just become an administrative drone like you're constantly having to make things and do things and send things and like there's this whole administrative part of teaching that's really grown over the last 15 to, um, years or so as, as far as i can tell and from my understanding of, of working now um it, it's a big burden and anything that schools can do to reduce that administrative work the better because teachers are paid to teach and if they're not being able to be their best in the classroom and also stay in the classroom for as many years as possible um then we've really that's a wasted resource in many ways like this that teachers could have been there for many years and, and become an incredible educator or become right to become um, a, a leading teacher in another school and, and so on and so forth. But if you're losing all of those people that have got so much heart that um, are really strained by the workload and strained by the system, um, then, yeah, it, it's it's heartbreaking to think that you have to start that process all again with a, someone else who wants to change their career and start from teaching from scratch. Because then it, your classrooms are and your schools are filled with people who are very new to teaching and there's already so much to get your head around as a new teacher. It's... You, that experience is really um, valuable and you want to keep as many experienced teachers in there as possible. Yeah, of course. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Swain. I've really enjoyed our conversation and I hope to have more in the future because you're just a wealth of knowledge and we only got through, I think, the first 10 or 15 minutes. <laughs> That's <laughs> true. Yeah, I had I had the, the discussion of handwriting and um, reading fluency ready to go as well. But yeah, we can have another discussion at another time, I'm sure. Um, there's so much in this. It's like it's it's 15 minutes of my day, but there is so much to talk about in how what goes into that and, and why it's like that. And I guess um, the things that I've learned as well along the way that help um, to, to help that come to life for teachers. So, um, you know, any, any chance to, to share that with others I'll, I'll take even if it's only a, a snippet that we've been able to cover today of course 